Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis at the corner of the Nicollet Mall and 12th Street. This past Tuesday, Minneapolis celebrated the 20th birthday of the Nicollet Mall, 14 blocks of pedestrian walkways winding from north to south through the center of the city's business and shopping districts. We are at the southern end of those 14 blocks. The church was here 110 years before the mall materialized, but for eight of the last 20 years that the mall has been here, Westminster, with the help of many supportive people, has presented about once a month, fall, winter, and spring, voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. We welcome all comers to our audience. It is as free to those sitting in the pews as it is to those who listen over public radio. I, Donald Meisel, delight as senior minister here at Westminster in hosting the forums, in which people of earned reputation in their fields share their convictions as much as their expertise. Our voice of conscience today is Dr. Joyce Brothers. Dr. Brothers, a noted psychologist, is an NBC radio network personality, columnist, author, business consultant, wife, and mother. A United Press International poll has named her one of the 10 most influential women, and a Gallup survey cited her as one of the 10 most admired women in America. Dr. Brothers is a regular columnist for Good Housekeeping magazine and a news commentator for NIWS syndicated television news service. Her daily column for King Features Syndicate is published in some 350 newspapers worldwide, and her books have been translated into as many as 26 languages. A graduate of Cornell University, Dr. Brothers received her doctorate from Columbia University. She was a member of the faculty of Hunter College in Columbia for six years and is now a frequent lecturer at universities across the country and enjoys a, a splendid reputation among college students. They're happy to see her come. We are delighted that she is with us here today, and we look forward with keen anticipation to what she's going to say about love, intimacy, and the family, 1987. Dr. Brothers. Thank you. I'm always a little bit hesitant about talking to people without a camera to hide behind. When you're in the business of giving advice to people, you're in a very vulnerable position. I didn't realize how vulnerable until my daughter Lisa brought home a composition from school many years ago. They asked the youngsters to write about a famous person, and she chose Socrates, and this is what she wrote. Socrates was a very wise man. He gave advice to everyone. 
they poisoned him. <laughs> Is the family endangered? That's the big question today. At first glance, it looks that way, doesn't it? The number of young people living together unmarried appears ominous. So does the divorce rate. Then there is the huge increase of mothers in the workforce, their children farmed out to others. But appearances can be deceiving, say psychologists Philip Blumstein and Pepper Schwartz of the University of Washington. They've questioned 12, you have problems? Let's see, <clears throat> if I hold this in my hand, I, it, does this help any? Yes, yeah, fine. All right. <clears throat> Dr. Blumstein and Dr. Schwartz, the University of Washington, have questioned 12,000 people in marriages, in cohabiting relationships, and homosexual and lesbian relationships. People were much more conventional than they, we thought they would be, they say. There wasn't all that much change. What do they mean? What did they find out? For one thing, they discovered that in this time of sexual permissiveness, 75% of husbands and 84% of wives believed in monogamy. They not only take vows to be true to each other, they expect to fulfill them. And they expect their partners to do so. The difference today from yesterday seems not to be that if the vows aren't kept by one partner or the other, the marriage may break up. Once upon a time, couples stayed together despite broken vows of fidelity. But if we can believe fiction, biography, and autobiography, this wasn't always healthful for the family. Today's way of handling infidelity by breaking up the family may be more drastic, but it can possibly be less damaging to the family as a concept. A family that stays together despite distrust and hate may hurt offspring more than a new family based on love and fidelity that is real. But more and more couples are realizing today that if they put the same effort and time and energy into making a first marriage work that they would put into making a second marriage work, and if they're willing to seek counseling for that first marriage, if it stumbles, that they can have very strong and valuable marriages indeed. There is a fear today that accepting homosexuality will endanger the family. The latest research from Johns Hopkins indicates that homosexuals become so in the womb. They are brought up in heterosexual families and most want to repeat that upbringing, just as heterosexuals do. Homosexuals, most of them, go to the bars and go to parties to find partners with whom they can set up housekeeping and live as their parents did. Many lesbian and homosexual males have children. And since homosexuality is a pre-birth accident, most of these children are heterosexual. It's quite possible that the family is strengthened when those excluded from it are allowed in. Dr. Blumstein and Schwartz found that many more women wanted to work than spouses wanted them to work. One reason might be another finding, that power in a marriage or, a or power in any kind of relationship depended on the amount of money a partner made. Men had more power if their wives made no money. They felt they had less power if their wives made as much or more than they did. 
Wives did not feel the same way. They don't want to take the provider roles away from husbands, according to Dr. Blumstein and Schwartz's study. They are more interested in getting husbands to pitch in with the housework and childcare. Only a third of husbands are interested in doing that, but almost all of them are interested in keeping the family alive, particularly theirs. With such dedication to the family, it will have to take a lot more bombardment before it goes away. Chances are it's here to stay. And there has never been a culture that wasn't a dead-end culture that didn't have some form of family life. Today, perhaps more than ever, family members need each other. It's a hard time for many of them. Jobs are lost or insecure. Housing is frequently inadequate. The world outside can be frightening, with crime in the streets and sometimes on the job and in the schoolyard. There's rarely enough money to cover all needs, let alone all desires. Grandparents and other relatives who once helped out in emergencies are frequently miles away. Under such stress, some families fall apart, but others don't. They continue year after year, strong and supportive of family members. What gives them their strength? Dr. Nick Stinnett of the University of Nebraska at Lincoln studied thousands of families in an effort to find out. He discovered six characteristics that strong families had in common. The first was time together. In strong families, for all members, family had high priority. Time together was scheduled, whether it was dinner every night, or breakfast every morning, or weekends of shared activities, or all of these. Family members made time for each other. And they spent it communicating, not watching television or reading the newspaper or talking to friends on the telephone. They listened, they talked, they shared their lives. They laughed and they joked and they even argued and fought. Dr. Stinnett found the arguing and fighting a sign of family health. The arguing meant that family members didn't insist that everyone in the family agree with everyone else. The fighting meant that conflicts could safely be brought out into the open rather than festering disruptively beneath the surface. Strong families also exhibited a high degree of commitment to one another. Dad didn't belittle his son's interest in music even though his own interests were athletic. And mom, a career woman, was happy to help her daughter bake cookies. Each family member was concerned with the happiness and with the well-being of every other family member. This gave them the ability to handle stress well, the fourth characteristic of strong families. They didn't blame one another for what went wrong. Rather, they rallied together to best the bad situation, whether it affected one person in the family or all of them. In like manner, they gave each other sincere appreciation for a promotion or for an honor or for a meal well cooked or for a small skill mastered. And last, strong families also possessed strong religious feelings. That didn't necessarily mean they attended church regularly, though many did. It did mean that they counted blessings and held in awe the mystery and wonder of life. Religious feeling kept them from pettiness and made them forgiving and patient and positive. 
None of these characteristics of strong families are happenstance, the researchers point out. All can be learned and practiced, and the reward is a family with strength enough to weather the most severe storms. If you've been shying away from marriage, and some couples have, because you fear marriages don't last today, then put your fears aside and tie the knot with confidence. Marriage and the family are presently alive and well and thriving all over America. The future looks bright. That's the latest word from a Harris poll that took a nationwide sample of 3,000 family members 18 years and older and found that nine out of 10 marriages surviving and 94% of family members living happily within their families. Moreover, Census Bureau statistician Arlene Slaughter of the Bureau's Marriage and Family Branch agreed that the recent Harris poll presents a rosy but accurate a portrait of the American family in 1987, and one on which more suitable projections into the future can be based than the gloomy picture we've been viewing lately. Census Bureau figures were used by the National Center for Health Statistics in 1981 to give us the bad news that in that year there had been 2.4 million marriages and 1.2 divorces. The sensationalizers took it from there, warning that half of all marriages were doomed to failure and the family was lost. That was one of the most specious pieces of a statistical nonsense ever perpetrated in modern times, scolds Lewis Harris of Harris Polls. Government figures in his survey show that only one in eight marriages will end in divorce, he corrects, and adds that in any single year, only 2% of existing marriages will break up. <coughs> Excuse me. How did the misperception about the stability of marriages occur? The Census Bureau figures compared only marriages and divorces for one year, 1981. And 1981 was a very bad year. But even in that year of marital failure, 54 million successful marriages just kept flowing along. And since 1981, the number of divorces has been decreasing annually, while the number of marriages has been rising. That portends well for the future. The Harris Poll found only 20% of families in which family members were unhappy. 11% of these families were headed by single mothers with dependent children under 18. These are people with very little education, Harris explains. They work longer hours because they're not prepared to hold down jobs that pay well. And they have too little time to take care of kids at home. All of which points up the fact that the bright picture we've received of marriage in the family from the Harris Poll can change its hue if both society and the individuals marrying don't give the future of the family high priority. Women as well as men today need to be prepared to support themselves and their children. Men as well as women need to be prepared to care for children and the homes in which they live. Both need the communication skills and sexual knowledge that will enable them to keep their marriages viable and fulfilling. Society owes it to the children to assist in this preparation and in the preservation of marriage and the family. Jim had always liked his ex-wife's parents well enough, but he presumed that after the divorce he would have no more contact with them. He presumed without the children. They wanted to visit their maternal grandparents every summer as they had in the past. And the grandparents, too, wanted to keep up the relationship with their grandchildren. 
Jim's parents were also alive and well and liked to take their grandchildren on trips. So though Jim and Mildred were divorced, the extended family continued. Then Mildred remarried, and instead of four grandparents, the children had six. When Jim remarried a few years later, they had eight grandparents, and a new brother and sister that Jim's new wife brought with her into the household. These two children were attached to the parents of their biological father, and so they too became grandparents to all the children in the family. The family is alive and well, more so than most people realize. Because given the increased longevity of family members, the family is also increasing in size. It's an extended family, not the nuclear family in which we focused attention for many years. At the turn of the century, life expectancy was 50 years, and most deaths occurred in infancy or in young adulthood. Now, for the first time in history, most people are living to be old, and we have never before had such a wonderful, vivid, good generation of older people. These are people who grew up with good nutrition, with the knowledge of the importance of exercise. But that means that four and even five generations of a family may be alive at one time. And the number of people interacting with the family, as in the case of Jim and Mildred, may include more because of divorce and remarriage. Despite divorce, most marriages remain and more marriages remain intact today than they did in the 1900s because of fewer deaths among young parents. This stability of marriage today is rarely recognized. Yet one out of every five married couples can expect to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. Even when there's a divorce, the once married partners have continuing ties to each other. And four out of five divorced people remarrying, adding new members to the original family. Given the longevity of today's family members, we can never assume that family relationships are fixed. The parent teaching the child in early years becomes the confidant of the adult child in later years. With divorce and remarriage, the same parent may find himself or herself sharing the once assured place in the family with others who were recently strangers. Individuals have a degree of control over their close family relationships but the lives of all family members are interdependent. The divorce and remarriage of parents affect their children and also their own parents. A financial setback or a move across the country by some members of the family is felt by all. And as the family grows larger because of longevity, there are more people in it to give help when help is needed and more people in it to give affection, to give encouragement, to give advice. This means that the family today is more important in people's lives than it has ever been before. Since single-person households are increasing more rapidly than any others, we need to look at some of our single people in our culture, which means there are a lot of people living alone. Some of them are young. We are marrying later than we used to, so there is a period between the time the child leaves home until the child, grown to an adult, joins another in marriage and forms a family. We're separating and divorcing, which means that people who were once a family find themselves sometimes alone. And then there are the older alone people, widowed, their children grown and gone. We're also a more mobile society than ever we were before. One that no longer assumes that a woman will leave her career to follow her husband when he takes his career to another place. 
Commute marriages are no longer uncommon. Neither are relationships in which one or another of the partner is gone for periods of time. How do the people living alone or left alone for days or weeks live through the experience? Being alone is a freedom both frightening and exciting, says Dr. David Zarkan, a clinical psychologist in Cambridge, Massachusetts. An anxious person might behave compulsively. He or she might eat too much or clean the house from top to bottom. Others afraid of being alone might throw a party in order to have contact with human beings, even if none is the person that is so sorely missed. Some people can't stand being alone. Others find it liberating. Even in the most intimate relationships, people censor themselves. Alone, they don't have to. They can do what they want, dance, read books that aren't approved, go to bed early, or stay in bed all day, or stay up all night. Whether or not people appreciate and use this freedom depends on the sense of self. The person who feels in contact with herself or himself can enjoy being alone. Another may worry about losing control. Inhibitions are relaxed. Will I go too far? It takes self-confidence to live alone, says Dr. Zarkhan. Greta Garbo has it. I want to be alone, she said, and she has been. Others have been too, and happily. But they aren't entirely alone. They have friends. They have human contacts. Human beings need that. It is the alone ones without such contacts that suffer who find themselves frightened at night by every strange sound, who can't occupy themselves when they are alone, or find themselves running around in unproductive circles trying to erase the aloneness. Most people can stand being alone if they know it will end. It's the ones who fear or know it won't and who react most strongly against it. Those who cherish their aloneness, and there are many, are those who are alone when they wish and have human connections with those when they are needed. Loneliness does not necessarily equal being alone. More and more people are enjoying living and being alone. Said one man now living alone, I don't have to deal with someone else's problems after I've been dealing with problems all day at work. Said a woman now alone, how nice to kick off my shoes and cook what I want for dinner without consulting anybody else. Living alone isn't the worst thing that can happen to you, as the fact that more and more people living alone today shows. I'd like to talk a little bit about love. We live in an age of miracle drugs, but the miracle that still does the most to lengthen life and make it happy is the oldest miracle we know. It is the miracle of love. Do you believe in love at first sight? Chances are, if you do, it has happened to you. And you are an impulsive person, open to suggestion, and deeply moved by the magical quality of all you experience around you. The fragrance of a rose, the sound of the sea, the warmth of the sun on your face, the beauty of a sunset. People like this are the kind who fall in love at first sight says psychologist Martin Heinstein of San Francisco State University. Such people fall in love at first sight, not only with other people, but also with places. I want to live here for the rest of my life. They have a tendency instantly to fall in love with houses, autos, articles of clothing, and puppies. 
People who rarely fell in love at first sight are those who make budgets, plan their days, buy nothing that didn't get a top rating in the consumer's report, and always carry their umbrellas if Willard Scott has predicted rain. <laughs> if one of these people falls in love, he has the money saved for the down payment on a house, or she has hoarded vacation time for the honeymoon and money in the bank for her trousseau. If you are a fall in love at first sight sort of person, count yourself fortunate if you fall in love with another cast from a similar mold. If you fall for someone who judges a house by its foundations rather than its ambience, your instant love may not be returned. And one-sided cases of love at first sight are the most painful kind of unrequited love, warned psychologist Virginia Saunders, also of San Francisco State. Chocolate is no cure, she adds. Usually, psychologists don't recommend love at first sight as a solid basis for a long-term relationship. But if it is reciprocal, it can work out. In fact, I'm married 38 years to the same man, and only on a game show all these years later did we discover that each one of us had fallen in love at first sight with each other. When you fall in love at first sight, you fall in love with a stranger. You may call it chemistry or sexual attraction. Dr. Heinstein says it's more like a fixation. You're drawn to the eyes, the mouth, the laugh, or the carriage, maybe the hairstyle. You feel immediately close to the person who has so strongly attracted you, but the reason you feel close may have little to do with that person. Though you don't realize it, you may have been attracted because the person's voice reminded you of your mother, or the smile was like the smile of your first sweetheart. Around the initial attraction, the subconscious link to the past and your dreams of what you have always wanted in your lover to what you wanted him or her to be like, create a being with whom you immediately fall in love. If you go no further than that, your romance is doomed, says Dr. Saunders. Nobody can live up to your dreams of an ideal love, particularly when the object of your affections has no idea of what picture of him or her is in your head. But if your instant love is reciprocal, and if the vision each of you has of the ideal other doesn't exclude the real flesh and blood person, then your love can thrive and grow on the unexpected qualities each reveals as you grow to know each other. In such mutual acceptance are the makings of a lasting love, a love that not only endures but nurtures. You have watched it happen, this difference between infatuation and love. Young Scott with a promising career ahead of him falls madly in love with pretty, popular, empty-headed Gloria, who repeatedly leads him on, then dumps him for someone else, then beckons him back again. Scott's family and friends fear that Scott will neglect his career and ruin his future by marrying Gloria one day, and sometimes that's exactly what happens. But there's often another ending to the story. It goes like this. Gloria decides finally that she will marry Scott. She recognizes that he's quite a catch, in fact, and that she would be a fool to let him get away. But just as she makes this decision, Scott backs off, devotes himself to his career, and shortly thereafter marries Laura, a highly intelligent woman with a career of her own. They eventually have two children and live happily ever after. How could Scott have been so in love with Gloria for so long and then turn her down for Laura? The answer is that he wasn't in love with Gloria, says Dr. Lillian Starr of Laguna Beach in Southern California. Scott was infatuated with Gloria, not in love with her. And it's infatuation, not love, that is blind. 
True love knows exactly what it's doing. Most of us go through many infatuations when we're young and dealing with sexual feelings that we don't yet understand and that sometimes seem overwhelming and frightening. We can get stuck in this period, mistaking infatuation for love and letting it rule our lives instead of incorporating genuine love into the future we have planned for ourselves. This is what happened when Nora, the school valedictorian, runs off with Freddie, the school's macho lady killer, instead of going on to college on the scholarship she has earned. Running off with Freddie seems wrong somehow and doesn't at all fit in with Nora's vision of the life she's dreamed of living. But she has to follow her heart, doesn't she? It wouldn't be romantic, it wouldn't be love if she hesitated, questioned, analyzed what she was doing and where it would lead. That's Nora's reasoning. And it's the reasoning of most people who are infatuated rather than in love, says Dr. Starr. They mistake the physical attraction and excitement for the emotional satisfaction and expansion that is love. How to tell the difference? Not all that difficult. If it won't wait, if it won't endure questioning and probing, then it isn't love. Particularly if it is too delicate to be discussed with the loved one, then it isn't love, it's infatuation. Love endures. It can be projected into the future where it enhances life plans rather than destroying them. Love also grows and facilitates the growth of the lovers. Both lovers, not one at the expense of the other. Any sacrifices love demands are sacrifices for good reasons that lovers take on together. People stuck in the infatuation period of growth protest that such love, though it may be enduring, is hardly romantic. Neither is it apt to occur at first sight. Dr. Starr disagrees. It often seems to occur at first sight because both lovers are prepared for it. They are so secure in the plans that they have made for the future that they have less difficulty than most recognizing the partner who fits perfectly into those plans. As for romance, it can reach new highs as lovers grow together and reach out for new experiences in every stage of their life together. Infatuation is a poor substitute and usually a short-term one for the lasting satisfactions of real love. I thank you all very much. question has been raised, what influence can one petite, very feminine blonde have on the American public? Well, judging by the kind of response you've gotten here this noon, I would say a great deal. And we're grateful to you and look forward to the question period. A quick uh, note for our radio audience. For the first time in 51 forums, we are going to uh, invite questions uh, in over the phone. So let me indicate what Westminster's phone number is to those who wish to do that. It is 332-3421. 332-3421. Now to those of you in the uh, live audience, uh, I remind you that you uh, are free now to fill out those yellow cards if you haven't already done so and to pass them to the aisle and our ushers will pick them up. 
for our larger radio audience, I remind that uh, you are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, and that our speaker this past half hour has been Dr. Joyce Brothers, a noted psychologist, columnist, author, NBC Radio Network personality, and yes, wife and mother. And her theme has been Love, Intimacy, and the Family, 1987. Dr. Brothers, would you return uh, to the platform, please, and uh, we'll begin uh, sending questions to you. Uh, this kind of uh, relaxed one or informal one from me at the beginning, you may or may not know, I, I assume you do, that the twins, the Minnesota twins are in the World Series. And, <laughs> and there are, you know, 50,000 people show up of an evening just to welcome the team back to town. And I see families walking down the street with, led by fathers, and they're all wearing hats and T-shirts. And, you know, there's, the, the din is incredible when all these people get together. What, what's the dynamic? What's the hunger behind this uh, longing, I guess you'd call it, to shout, to enjoy, uh, to rejoice, to sing hallelujah in one form or another? Well, I think if we look back on our lives and look for the time of greatest joy, it has not been a time when we have no problems in our lives. It's been the time when we have overcome a major obstacle. And <laughs> I believe that you're going to win and that you're not going to be second anymore. <laughs> I think we'll send uh, I, I the tape to say, the team. <laughs> I must say that um, my husband and I have been married for 38 years. It's our only marriage and we love each other very much and we have no intention of ever getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. But if we ever did get a divorce, the only way my husband would know it is if they announced it on the wide world of sports. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Questions are be uh, beginning to come now from the floor. Uh, I'm glad to say that Diane Nyman and Elizabeth Bennett of this congregation are sorting the questions for us today. Let me give you this question to begin with. In dealing with emotional and physical intimacy, what steps do you believe are necessary for forgiveness to become operative when a married couple have built barriers of distrust and disrespect? What steps necessary for forgiveness to become operative? I think the first step is one that takes time. Trust is not a matter of somebody saying, you must trust me. Trust is a matter of probabilities. If somebody says, for example, let's say a husband says uh, to his wife, I'm going to work late in the office tonight, dear, and um, the time passes, and then a week later he says, I'm going to work late in the office, dear, uh, and then another week passes, and the third time he says, I have to work late in the office, uh, one of the children in the family falls down and it's important that the wife reach him and tell him uh, and she calls him in the office and he is there. That increases the probability that he is doing what he says he's doing, he's working and not off with someone else. And that is true of all trust. Trust is a matter of probability. When something happens, you build up that probability. So it will take a long time if trust has been broken for the trust to build. And it is very difficult. People say, for example, in infidelities, well, what he doesn't know or what she doesn't know won't hurt her. It does indeed hurt. 
Because even if they never do find out that infidelity, the fact is that you yourself, who have been unfaithful, begin to censor everything. All the words that are in your head, you must censor before they come out your mouth. You're even afraid to relax in bed uh, and for the intimate embrace, for fear of saying the wrong name. Uh, and so there is a wall that is built between you and the other person. And just as it took time to build that wall brick by brick, it takes time to bring that wall down. And sometimes when there is a breach of trust, it can never be repaired. But sometimes when there is a breach of trust, by seeking counseling, the two people can make everything honest all out on the table and say, look, we have made a mistake. We can learn by this mistake. What has been wrong with our relationship that another person has come into the picture? Because in a good relationship, another person cannot. What has been wrong and how can we fix it? And if the two people agree, if the two are committed to making that relationship work, it can be repaired. It is very hard to forgive. It is possible to forgive. Forgetting is very difficult indeed, but it is possible, maybe not to forget, but to put it aside and let all of the good and new things flood into the relationship. But it is important for people to realize that that will not happen instantly. It takes time, it takes work, and you're far better off being trusting and trusting one another and behaving in a trustful manner to begin with than trying to repair a broken trust. Thank you. This is the uh, first question from the uh, radio audience. When married couples who have been married, say, 15 or 20 years, lose affection, what kind of therapy helps? Any therapy, provided the two of you believe in the therapist. We have any number of studies which show that it is your relationship to the therapist, a relationship of, of feeling that this is a good person, an understanding person, a caring person, that makes the difference. But as I indicated before, there needs to be commitment on both parts. Uh, both people in this relationship, both partners, whether it's a married relationship or it's a living together relationship, there needs to be commitment to that relationship. Sometimes when there's commitment only on one side, the other person, the person who wants out, uses a therapist simply as a prop, as an excuse, as a, a sop for his or her guilt. Well, it's okay for me to leave because now my wife or my husband has someone they can lean on, this therapist. So the therapist can be effective if both people believe that the therapist is well qualified, is well trained, is, is caring, has a tie of emotion to the couple. But also, very important, is the couple's desire to make this relationship work, the commitment on both sides. Thank you. How would you go about convincing 17-year-old, a 17-year-old, that the love affair is infatuation? First of all, realize that some relationships that parents think from the outside are infatuation or wrong for the youngster can turn out to be the very best relationship possible. Um, Abraham Lincoln's mother-in-law thought that it was a terrible marriage and tried to get his, uh, the, her daughter to 
to break up the relationship. But I do think that if you, if you see a couple and you want to know whether this relationship is worthwhile and whether it wor will work, the best person to tell you that is the woman's mother. Uh, mother has the best sense of what her daughter needs and how she will relate to men. And so uh, if you're ever in a, uh, in a wedding and want to know how this is going to work out, the bride's mother is the one who really has the key. But when youngsters are too young to understand real love, we as parents understand that we fall in love, youngsters fall in love, and it is a preparation for the love that occurs later on. And very often there are two or three or four re love relationships before the person is ready for a long-term commitment. And that's how we learn to love, by falling in love and falling out of love. And so infatuation, puppy love, if we want to call it, can be a very valuable thing because it teaches us how we relate to other people, whether we can accept that person's faults as well as the good points. And so there is generally a series of love relationships and at the time the persons are involved in it, they think it is forever love, they, they think it is the strongest of all loves and it is very hard to convince the person who feels that love otherwise. And time itself will often break up the relationship. Uh, they've done some studies on infatuation uh, and found that uh, what they did was they studied college students and uh, people who felt uh, in love immediately, uh, they followed them down and in one month a third of them were no longer going together, in two months two-thirds were no longer going together. Uh, so time itself can be on your side. Um, also, if you make very negative comments about the individual's love object, it tends to solidify the relationship rather than break it up. Uh, if, if Romeo and Juliet's parents said, oh boy, what a terrific couple and, and we like each other very much and so on, chances are they would not have had this deathless, dying love. Uh, so sometimes a parent's intervention by saying negative things can be just the thing that will keep the couple together. So uh, about the best that a parent can do is to say what he or she thinks. I think you have an obligation and then to stand back and not push anymore and to hope that this too will pass. Two questions that are really one. They, uh, one is from the radio audience and one from this audience. What is your opinion of the height report? And then, according to height, the height report, 70% of women are dissatisfied with verbal communication and intimacy with their male partners. 17% satisfied. Does this mean that women's expectations are too high or men are unable to respond? <laughs> <laughs> I have some, uh, some concern about the statistics in the Height Report. Um, when you use as your methodology sending out a very long, complicated, uh, involved questionnaire and you only get a very, very, very small proportion of back, you tend to get those people returning the questionnaire and spending all that time and spending all that effort, the kinds of people who are very angry or very upset or have a, 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 a burden that they want to rid themselves of, you do not really get a very clear cross-section of the population. Uh, I did some work many, many years ago for the original Kinsey report. And what Dr. Kinsey did was to try 
to get 100% of a population. That, so let's say that he went into a sorority or a fraternity or he went into a prison uh, and he would put up a sign saying that he was doing some interviewing for scientific purposes and the first people he would get were two kinds of people. One, people who wanted to brag a lot because they were doing so much. Uh, and two, people who were feeling very guilty because they did more than they felt they should be doing. And then after he got those reports, then he would come and lecture and talk to the group and talk about how important this was for science and he would get the shyer people. And then when he got almost everybody except a few very shy holdouts, he had everybody else pressure these few holdouts because it was so important for science that these people would be interviewed. So he would in many cases get 100% populations. Now when I interviewed, uh, we spent three or four hours on an interview. The people were absolutely assured that no name would ever be tied up with what they were, uh, with their interview. Uh, Dr. Kinsey used the person's name attached to a number, then that number was attached to another number and, and a third number so that the original names were kept in his safe. No one ever had the combination to the safe and he swore uh, that he would go to jail. Uh, he would, um, there would be never any time uh, that these original names uh, were ever released and they have never been, they were destroyed. Uh, coming back to the methodology, I think the methodology gives you uh, a better picture than simply sending a questionnaire off. I think you had the same kind of thing when I don't remember whether it was Dear Abby or Ann Landers uh, who asked people, would you have children again if you, uh, if those people who had children, would you have children again? And an enormous number said, no, I would never have children again. Uh, and that's because the people who were enjoying their children had no time to sit down and write a letter. <laughs> it was just... <laughs> When you ask people in a scientific situation who are retired, looking back over your life, what has given you the most pleasure in your life? Uh, when they have had children, they say, my children have given me the most pleasure, more important than a fulfilling career or making a lot of money or being famous or anything at all. Thank you. Some months ago, the Minneapolis paper printed an interview with you. In it, you discussed how women are no need to be caretakers of relationships because, quote, women need men more than men need women. That's the quote. Do you really devalue women this much? No, I do not. Uh, sometimes when you say things, you aren't always quoted in context. Uh, in terms of marriage, uh, we now have at present moment 7,300,000 more marriageable women than marriageable men enough to populate an entire country, Austria. So that if a woman is determined to be married and wants to be married, there are many women who do not wish to be married and they live, as we've indicated when we talked about aloneness and loneliness, they live very happy, satisfying lives. In fact, when we ask people about their own happiness, the happiest of all people in terms of what they say about themselves are married men, then come single women, then come um, married women, and then come bachelors. Uh, and uh, it's believed, by the way, that the reason bachelors say that they are the least happy of all people is that they can't find anyone to look down on. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but at any rate, uh, in terms of women needing men and men needing women, that men need women, women need men. But if you wish marriage, realize that if you uh, give 50% uh, and you are very lucky and your husband gives 50%, that's the most wonderful thing imaginable. But sometimes uh, if you don't give more than 50% and it is needed, there are a great many women, there are 7,300,000 women out there who would love your husband. Uh, so uh, men now realize that they are the blue chip stock at present moment. But as we move, this is the ninth, we went through the he generation, that we went through the me generation, and then we went through the we generation. The 1980s, to be honest, scientific about it, are the he generation. But the 90s will be the she generation. Because what's happening today, if we look at the statistics of colleges, more, more than 50% of college students are female. And if we look at the dropout statistics of high school males, uh, males tend to drop out of high school more than females. And so what is happening is that we are getting many more young men who will eventually go for jobs and they will not have the skills for those jobs. Because most of the jobs that do not take skill or long-term training are disappearing today. We don't need brawn any longer to, uh, for uh, most construction, for most heavy equipment. We can press buttons and robots and, and computers do it for us. What we will need for future is the very complex training that is involved in, in service jobs and in other kinds of jobs. And women are getting that kind of training while men are not. So when a man in the future goes for work, he may find that those work positions are taken by the women because they have the skills and the training necessary for them. So we are moving into a time when the 90s will be the she generation. Another question from the audience. How typical is your portrait of the extended family after divorce? Isn't it more typical for one parent, usually the father, to withdraw physically, emotionally, and or financially? Consider record of child support payments. The father may withdraw financially, but I think now that with many of the uh, many of the laws that we have not allowing a man to withdraw and most important our psychological knowledge of how important it is for a father not only to keep contact with his son but to keep contact with his daughter because a father's relationship with the daughter determines her feeling about men for the rest of her life and so we are seeing a great many men remaining in touch with the family, maybe not supporting them as they should be supported, but at least keeping contact. Uh, and what we're seeing and what I tried to show you was that there is now a growth of the extended family where people do stay in contact. In fact, uh, some very important laws uh, have been passed now. In the past, uh, what people did who divorced, they tried to hurt each other by refusing to let the grandparent uh, of the uh, of um, the grandparents of the child see, uh, see the child. Uh, and now we have laws which allow grandparents visitation rights uh, and they cannot be kept away from their grandchildren. So I think we are moving more and more into the sense that 
Yes, it is possible to have a bigger family and to have those ties and to extend them. That it doesn't always mean uh, a tragedy for the family. Do you feel that women's lib has or is strengthening or weakening the family? Women's lib strengthening or weakening the family? I think women's liberation has strengthened the family. In the past, women stayed in bad marriages because they had no alternative. They couldn't support themselves. Now, women and men are staying together in marriage because they love each other, because they want to be together. We don't need to stay in bad marriages anymore. Society does not penalize a man, for example, at work, or a woman at work, if they've been divorced, uh, as they did in the past. In the past, when a man got divorced, uh, if there was a choice between that man, the divorced man, uh, and another man for a job, people always felt that the, uh, the man who was not divorced was more stable uh, and gave him the job. That does not happen today um, to any great extent. We don't stay in the marriage for external reasons. We stay because we love each other, because we respect each other, we care for each other, not because um, she can't be supported uh, or she can't support herself. Uh, a man doesn't stay in a marriage to have a regular sexual outlet uh, as he did in the past. Any man who stays in a marriage to have a regular sexual outlet, the sexual revolutions come and he's out of ammunition. So people are staying together for very good reasons, because they care for each other. And I think that women's lib has made this possible. Uh, a sense of equality in the marriage, a sense of give and take, not a master-slave relationship. Because when you have a master-slave relationship, there is resentment not only on the part of the slave, but also on the part of the master, and it does not work. There are several questions about remarriage. I'll put them together. Is there a formula for remarrying of a divorced couple? Do you think a second marriage is harder as we get older? And then a perhaps underlying basic question. In understanding and working with blended family networks, what do you believe the chances are of remarriage being successful without counseling to work through the brokenness and pain of the first marriage? Those are very complicated questions. Yes, Let me take I've... it from a statistical point of view first and then from an emotional point of view. When we look at the statistical picture of marriages throughout this country, what you see is a bell-shaped curve. That is, the ends of each uh, are rather small, and then you have a big bulge in the center, a bell shape, uh, and then the tailing out to another uh, end. And so what you have are people a few people who are enormously happy in their marriage, who, who are capable of love forever, passion forever, as long as the two people live. Uh, and then you have this uh, big bulge, or the bell portion, in which you have people who love each other, who care for each other, who find satisfaction in children and careers, uh, but they are neither wildly happy or wildly unhappy. You have satisfactory marriages. And then you go to the end of that bell-shaped curve and you have people who have terrible marriages, who have Cold War marriages, who tear at each other and hurt each other. And when you look at second marriages, they do not follow this bell-shaped curve. What you have are, uh, what you've got are a large number of people who have wonderful second marriages because they have learned the mistakes that they made in their first marriages and they are determined that they're going to make this second marriage work. 
at the other end of the extreme, you have people who have brought all of the problems. What they did is they packed their bags and they moved to a new marriage and they packed all of their troubles and all of their difficulties and all of their meanness and all of their, the things that caused the divorce. Everything get, get packed and brought into the new marriage. And so you have some very, very bad marriages. And most, uh, and not as big a bell-shaped curve in the center. So statistically, when you look at second marriages, they are less likely to succeed than first marriages. But it doesn't mean that every time you have a remarriage that it isn't going to work, because some remarriages are better than the original marriage, because as we get older, hopefully we get a little wiser, and it, we do get older as we uh, get involved in our second marriage, just by the fact that it takes time to marry, divorce, and remarry. Uh, and so where you have wisdom, you can have a much better second marriage than a first marriage, but if you look at the overall statistics, they are less likely to succeed because they have a great many problems, extra problems. His children sometimes, her children sometimes, their children sometimes, problems of discipline, who's going to discipline the child who is not uh, their blood child and so on. And we've got all of this mythology about the step-parent being cruel or difficult, starting with Cinderella and, and on. Uh, what we are finding is that if the two people, again coming back to the thing we've been talking about, if there is commitment on both sides, it can work. If there is commitment on one side, then the flames just cannot be made into uh, to a, a warm, warm fire that you can warm yourself by and, uh, and enjoy. A quick and very current question. How can one deal with stresses of the stock market? <laughs> if you look at birds, birds don't fly around when there is a storm. Birds nest. And when there is uncertainty in life, we nest in our family. We just pull together and we huddle together and we give each other love and sympathy and concern and release from panic. And it is that love and that caring and that huddling together and that warmth that allows us not to panic, to let the big boys play their games. And when they're finished, then we can come back and make reasonable, intelligent decisions, not decisions in panic. Dr. Brothers, in your prepared statement, <laughs> You said that one mark of a strong family was that they listened, they talked, and they shared. Well, you have listened and talked and shared with us in a very profound and caring way, and we thank you for your visit, and we hope you'll come back. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.